and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, another episode of ASCO. It feels like I'm saying that a lot recently, Josh, but we have gone through lung, CNS, early breast, colorectal, upper GI, and now we come to the next cab off the rank, which is genitourinary, always a fertile ground for new studies, and 2023 was no exception. I am joined by the intrepid explorer, Josh, who is going to start things off without further ado or delay, talking about the mighty Thor, not Chris Hemsworth, not Natalie Portman, not any other iteration of the character, like that uh, slightly camp one from the 80s, but the trial of Ertafitnib in urothelial cancer. What a wonderful introduction, Michael, to introduce Thor. This would definitely be Natalie Portman's Thor if we had to choose between the two. So I'm interested to see you actually come back to that and justify your reasoning. And always, if you like what we're doing, please rate, subscribe, and tell your friends. Ertafitinib versus chemotherapy in advanced metastatic urothelial carcinoma with FGFR alterations. I always do the FGFR stuff because I think it's an exciting area of development, minus the toxicity. You sound like an announcer at WrestleMania. Yes, welcome to the uh, WrestleMania. We're talking about FGFR versus classic immunotherapy and chemotherapy. Who will win? Uh, what, what is the elevator? What is... Flawless. Flawless, Josh. What is the elevator pitch here? So the current treatments, platinum-based chemotherapy and Evalumab or Pembrolizumab, plus or minus EV if platinum ineligible. Evalumab pretty well tolerated, some small side effects, pembrolizumab, somewhat similar when it comes to the classic immunotherapy agents. Later lines, you can look at other anti-PD-1s, chemotherapy like taxanes, and then you've got ertafitinib. Only 30% of real-world patients make it to third line after IO due to progression, due to toxicities, due to intolerance of treatment because of their performance status. There has been no large studies demonstrating survival benefit with later line therapies and this is where fgfr comes in so fgfr is a membrane-based tkr tyrosine kinase receptor involving cellular proliferation differentiation and steroid biosynthesis four subtypes and fgfr alterations are seen in 20 percent of advanced uc there's higher expression in low-grade tumors maybe that's because as, as the biology gets worse then the receptors change And we're looking at today ertafitinib, which is an oral selective pan-FGFR TKI. As always, it's been approved in the US already. Eligible patients with metastatic locally advanced urothelial carcinoma with progressive disease after at least one line of therapy, including immunotherapy. They must have an FGFR mutation or fusion and a good performance status. Majority of patients had low PD-1 in this particular trial and had received two lines of prior therapy. Let's jump into the results, Michael. And (laughs) I don't know why I said it that way. Let's jump into the results. Overall survival was 12.1 months versus 7.8 months with a hazard ratio of 0.63 and a p-value of 0.05 statistically significant, consistent across subgroups, and lesser benefit in ECOG-0 and those with absence of visceral metastases and lower tract malignancies. So we're all... ECOG-2, Josh. What did I say? ECOG-0. ECOG-2. ECOG-2. So the poor performance status arm. Progression-free survival, 5.6 months versus 2.7 months. Hazard ratio of 0.58. This is at least a second or third line therapy here. So that's these are great results in that subset population of the 20 percent 
But of course, we have to talk about toxicities. Hyperphosphatemia, so high phosphate levels, diarrhea, stomatitis were the most frequent toxicities, and 8.1% discontinued due to treatment-related adverse events. Of interest, nail disorders, 11.1%, skin disorders, 11.9%, and eye disorders, 2% were grade 3 or 4. I've seen this with other FGFR inhibitors. The nail tox can be quite bad, but they're looking at ways of minimizing this. And remember, like immunotherapy and pneumonitis, we weren't particularly good at managing that in the early days, and that's going to be the same with our FGFR family. Conclusion, this is a good study. There is superiority of ertafitinib with FGFR alterations in heavily pretreated metastatic urothelial carcinomas. We see greater OS and PFS outcomes, tolerable toxicities, and of course, we need more molecular data and further follow-up. Could we use this earlier in the approach for patients? Probably, and I think that would be the next line of research to see. And then the next question would be, what would happen with immunotherapy? Would we use that as second line and would we see the same benefit? And so it's going to be about sequencing of these drugs, like many of the trials and many of the outcomes that we're seeing. One of the things that is an interesting question, and I don't know if there was an answer in in the presentation, Michael, but there's different FGFI receptors. Do you know if there was a different response rates between the group and were, were they presented? I don't think there was any firm answer to that question, Josh. There was a suggestion from memory that patients with um, FGFR3 might respond a bit better. We don't know. So future research in this area is definitely needed. I, I think one of the things that they're going to do in the coming years is potentially subgroup analyses and, and really hone down on which FGFR alterations, whether they be mutations, fusions, and of which subtype of FGR, FGFR receptor actually benefit the most. Exactly, Michael. And one thing we have to say, you have to test your patients. That's what you wrote, Michael. Test your patients. Test your patients. Yes, exactly. You've got to test your patients because these this is a potential treatment. And if you're comparing the EV301 and the Trophy U01 trials, there was similar efficacy with an overall survival of 121 in the Thor trial, 12.9 in the EV301, and the Trophy trial was 10.9. Michael, what were the difference between the trials? At a base level, they all looked at heavily pretreated um, urothelial cancer, I think in the um, EV301, which is of uh, infortimab vedotin. They had a significant number of patients who had had three previous lines of therapy. Trophy of sasituzumab govitecan, which was a phase two study, and Thor had similar rates of patients who had had one to two lines of therapy. But notably, Thor was unique in that 100% of patients had been previously treated. There were a subset of patients in both other studies, I believe, where the patients were treatment naive for various reasons. The question that came up in the discussion of Thor was really about, okay, so you've gone through your cisplatin-based chemotherapy, you've gone through Avelumab, or if you're cis and carbo-ineligible, you've gone straight to Pembro, and all of a sudden the game is opening up. It's no longer just paclitaxel, you know, in in an ideal world where we've got access to everything, it is a choice of infortimab vedotin or ertafitinib or sasituzumab govitecan. The question was, what do you choose? And I think the answer is, or the best answer that we have at the moment is you match it to toxicities. So ertafitinib, the main toxicities were hyperphosphatemia, diarrhea, and central serous retinopathy. 
in infotimab vedotin, peripheral neuropathy was a main issue. Other issues include rash and hematological toxicity, such as neutropenia, which was much less present in erdofitinib. And obviously, anyone who's used SG will know that it is notorious for causing diarrhea and neutropenias. So you really do want to match the toxicity to the patient. Do you have a patient who would be willing to have regular ophthalmological examinations because you need that for erdofitinib? Do you have someone who will be compliant with loperamide to manage diarrhea because you'll need that for SG? Do you have a diabetic patient because you probably shouldn't give them uh, infortimab vedotin? Because the efficacy in a dirty cross-trial comparison appears similar, you're really going by the, the drugs on their, on their toxicity merits. So I think what we can say is you need to select your patients carefully, look at the toxicities, sequencing is going to be an issue or already is an issue now, given all these options. And Natalie Portman, who did die of cancer in Thor, I feel that's a spoiler, um, would be proud of how he presented that, combining it. The film has been out for months. I don't think you can call it a spoiler. But yes, and and, and it is a good problem to have, considering the dearth of options that have been available for pre-treated bladder cancer patients. Well, I hope all of our listeners can make peace with the fact that I gave away the spoiler to that movie. But Michael, do you want to talk about the Peace One trial? Josh, you're in mid-season form with these puns. Um, So Peace One is a bit of a complex trial, and I'm going to do my best to summarise and simplify it, but it is a two-by-two study. So it has four arms in total. The main rationale behind this, this is a study of radiotherapy, and it is a study of radiotherapy in the hormone-sensitive prostate cancer space. As anyone who has looked at this space will tell you, the standard of care is rapidly evolving. We currently have some permutation and combination of ADT, chemotherapy, and novel hormonal therapies. But the question is, is there any benefit for radiotherapy, specifically radiotherapy to the primary? We mentioned this in our uh, ASCO appetizer episode, Seeming it seems like a month ago now, but we know that radiation to the primary in the castration resistance space does tend to improve outcomes, but is the same true for hormone sensitive space. So patients who were enrolled had to have de novo metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. And the information that was presented focused on patients with a low burden of disease. So low volume disease as per the charted criteria. They had to have greater than one lesion on bone scan and or CT, so they didn't allow for PSMA PETs. They had to have a good ECOG status, and they had to be compliant with continuous ADT because ultimately that is the bedrock upon which all other treatments are built. So as I mentioned, it's a forearm study with a two-by-two design. So arm one and arm two are grouped together, and arm three and arm four are grouped together, though arm one tends to be the reference point for a lot of the hazard ratios that will come in a moment. So ARM1 was just the standard of care, which usually was ADT plus or minus chemotherapy. And this was uh, by investigator choice. ARM2 was standard of care plus abiraterone and prednisolone. Those two were always given together. ARM3 was standard of care plus radiotherapy. And ARM4 was standard of care plus abiraterone and prednisolone plus radiotherapy, the triplet, the full Monty. A couple of notes with this, the radiotherapy was given in the form of 74 greys in 37 fractions, which according to the presenters and the discussion was actually a higher dose than in the original study in Stampede that examined a a similar question. The co-primary endpoints were radiographic progression-free survival and overall survival. Now, a quick note on the 
radiographic progression-free survival, and this came up in the discussion, is that investigators could actually instigate subsequent systemic therapy if there was a PSA elevation without radiographic progression. To me, Josh, that has the potential of skewing results ever so slightly, depending on how much of a lag there is between PSA going up and actual evidence of radiographic progression, because you could be delaying radiographic progression. Very interesting point to bring up. And that's one of the big challenges with most prostate trials, uh, isn't it? Figuring out what do you define as progression. And usually they have somewhat not malleable endpoints, but you can choose PSA, you can choose radiographic. There's a whole criteria, which uh, I won't get into right now about choosing it. Plus early on in these trials, you can see a flare of bone metastases. And at that point, you're like, oh, are they progressing? And likely they're not. But at the same time, if you do a scan at the eight or 12 week mark, you might end up seeing that discordance with PSA as well. Michael, I did have a question and I know we've got limited time. Their standard of care was interesting. Do you think because piece one might've predated some of the more up-to-date data, that's why they've said ADT plus or minus docetaxel? Very much so. So I think this study has been in the works for a while because they actually mentioned that in the initial trial schema, docetaxel was not mandatory. So it was predating the idea that if you have patients with uh, with high volume disease, and even though we're focusing on low volume, there was a proportion of patients who had high volume disease, that you that docetaxel is the standard of care. This is leaving out completely the emerging evidence in Enzimet and Arisons and uh, the original or the other piece one um, of novel hormonal therapies in um in the hormone sensitive space so i think it is that is a a bit of a a caveat that needs to be kept in mind secondary endpoints there were tons and only a handful were presented at asco specifically castration resistance free survival the time to serious gu events which included uh insertion of a urinary catheter a jj stent nephrostomy uh later prostate radiotherapy terps or radical prostatectomy so basically when you have a patient in front of you who's getting some sort of systemic therapy and radiotherapy and you need to call up your friendly neighborhood urologist and say i need you to unplug this because things are getting a little bit dicey the other secondary endpoint that was presented was toxicity there are a ton of others and it will be interesting to see how this all plays out one that i will highlight for anyone listening to this in the future greetings people from the future, is that they're actually looking at patients with neuroendocrine differentiation. And it will be interesting to see whether this or or how they actually fit that into this study schema, because I would imagine that aside from docetaxel, none of the other treatments are going to have significant impact on a patient with small cell prostate cancer. Now we come to the results. And again, all of these are for the low volume cohort. In terms of time to radiographic progression, first off, we'll say this is mentioned in years, and I almost got tripped up on that. I'm so used to looking at these numbers and saying, oh, it's it's months. And then I looked at the uh, the units and found out that it was years, which makes a lot more sense given we're talking about early prostate cancer. But from arm one to four, respectively, it is three three years. There you go. I did it again. Three years, 2.6 years, 4.4 years, and 7.5 years. So there is a numerical benefit for the triplet or even quadruplet therapy. Um, Although given that it's low volume, the standard of care would probably be ADT. The hazard ratio in reference to ARM1, which is the standard of care, ARM2, which was just standard of care plus abiraterone, was 1.1, which is interesting given that that is basically standard of care plus 
and a novel hormonal therapy, which is all the rage these days. Three, which is uh, standard of care plus radiotherapy. The hazard ratio was 0.76 and the triplet was 0.50. So escalating therapy directed against the prostate roughly equates to better radiographic progression-free survival. This was statistically significant only when you compared ARM3 and ARM4 with the reference range of ARM1. So um, the standard of care plus abiraterone was not statistically significant. In terms of overall survival, I'll really only um, talk about comparison of ARM3 and ARM4, which is the ADT plus radiotherapy plus or minus abiraterone. There was no real difference in overall survival. Hazard ratio of 0.98 with a p-value of 0.86. Interestingly, the results of the overall survival were better in this study than the Stampede study, and this was put down to more effective treatments available now in the hormone-sensitive and castration-resistant space. Radiotherapy plus or minus abiraterone also improves the time to serious GU events in both the low-volume and overall population, and the castration-resistant prostate cancer-free survival, so the time to castration resistance, was better as well. Comparing ARM3 to ARM4, the hazard ratio was 0.74 with a p-value of 0.007. So in conclusion, the triplet of abiraterone plus ADT plus radiotherapy could be considered a new standard of care, but I think that's a bit of an ambitious statement because obviously, as you mentioned, Josh, the standard of care is a rapidly evolving treatment sphere, and this only looks at abiraterone, which I suspect, given time, will probably come to be the least popular of the novel hormonal therapies. So what about enzalutamide? What about apalutamide? What about my personal favorite, darolutamide? Are we going to see similar results? Is the benefit from the radiotherapy or are there other factors? The other point that was made is what about surgery? Obviously, radiotherapy to the prostate is one thing, but radical prostatectomy up front, would that produce a similar outcome? I guess the main question, because this is where other studies such as Enzimet and Narasens and et al. Focus is what about patients with high volume disease? Uh, but it will be interesting to see if radiotherapy actually does benefit the high volume patients because these are the patients that are probably going to need an escalation of treatment sooner rather than later. A great summary, Michael, of what is quite a complex trial if you look at the nuts and bolts of it. And if you're looking for other reading in this area, I'd recommend the Arasens trial the Stampede trial, and Latitude. It's a bit like the Ninja Turtles. You all have your favourite, but no one's perfect. Moving on to Talipro 2. Josh, Josh is on a pop culture kick today. Apologies for anyone who is listening who is not into pop culture. Thanks, Michelangelo. Looking at Talipro 2, another trial. The elevator pitch, enzalutamide is the current standard of care treatment in the metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Talipro 1 was talazoparib monotherapy, which demonstrated durable anti-tumor activity in patients with heavily pretreated metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer with a HRR gene alteration. Talipro 2 is the first study to investigate combination of talazoparib and enzalutamide as the first-line treatment. One thing to note is that HRR stands for homologous recombination repair genes related to the prostate cancer. And if you can modify that, potentially you can improve outcomes. With this trial, it was combining those two drugs as first-line treatment, and the benefits of HRR mutated and overall population were presented at ASCO-GU early in 2023. Inclusion criteria, castrate-resistant prostate cancer that was metastatic, 
ongoing ADT, all the usual suspects. Stratified to prior abiraterone and docetaxel in the hormone-sensitive prostate cancer setting, already that's a problem. You should not be switching the anti-androgen tablets because there's no benefit for that. Although I will say devil's advocate, the number of patients was very small. I think it was only about 8% of patients had previous abiraterone. They were randomized to either enzalutamide plus telazoparib or enzalutamide plus placebo. Primary endpoints were progression-free survival and secondary endpoints, all the other cool stuff, overall survival, time to chemo, progression-free survival two, objective response rate and outcomes and safety. Patients in the cohort 2 arm, which was the HRR mutated cohort, was 399. The most common mutations, BRCA2, ATM, CDK12, CHECK2, and BRCA1. Looking at the results now, radiological progression-free survival showed a hazard ratio of 0.45. Pretty neat with a statistical significance and the median RPFS was not reached versus 13.8 months. So doing well if you look at that's versus what is a you know really good drug, enzalutamide. So there was similar benefit regardless of prior abiraterone use, but only 8% of patients had previous abiraterone. There was benefits in patients with BRCA alterations with a ha- hazard ratio of 0.2 versus 0.68 and a low Gleason score. There was benefit by gene with the highest in the BRCA2 population. And there were a small number of other groups sort of ATM or check, so it's difficult to really assess their benefit. At present, overall survival is immature, but there is a trend towards benefit with a hazard ratio of 0.69 and a p-value while not statistical significant at present is getting close and it hasn't been reached. The time to PSA progression had a hazard ratio of 0.41, so 28.6 months versus 11.1 months. These numbers are astronomically good. So 60% more effective than the current standard of care. I wish that was what we saw with every patient with every trial we ever did. When we're looking at the time to chemo, objective response rate, PFS2, they all favor the combination arm. There are higher rates of toxicity in the combo arm, which is 66 versus 37% of grade three to four adverse events. So you have to think about that as well when treating these patients. Anemia, fatigue, neutropenia were all present, but no sort of myelodysplastic or leukemia and low rates of pulmonary embolisms. So in conclusion, combination therapy is an exciting opportunity for your patients to have better outcomes in the HRR mutated carcinate resistant prostate cancer setting in the first line. It does not examine subsequent treatment with other treatments such as PARP inhibitors And is there any significance between the combination versus sequential therapy? These are all questions that are not known and they are currently being explored in the ongoing BRCA away trial. So the benefit was highest in patients with a BRCA2 mutation and there was increasing toxicity predominantly hematological. So as the summary of, I think, our discussion points, Michael, you've got to test your patients, look for BRCA mutation early. But as a, as a summary, don't forget the benefit of the gene has a, had, a, had a hazard ratio of 0.19 in the BRCA2 population. Yes, a very exciting study. Um, but again, there is that question and the BRCA away trial, which I loved how you pronounced it. And I think that should be the official pronunciation, BRCA away. For our last uh, discussion point, we're going to do something a little bit different because there were multiple studies presented for advanced renal cell cancer that examined different combinations of TKIs and immunotherapy. 
This was a very interesting discussion that was given by Dr. David A. Braun, basically looked back at the history of metastatic clear cell renal cell cancer. And you know me, Josh, and long-time listeners will know that I do love opening our episodes with some obscure historical quote or another. If we were to take a time machine and go back 30 years and looked at the treatment of renal cell cancer, it would look very, very different. Back then, even though we had probably very little inkling as to why, we knew that there was an immunological component to renal cell cancers because we had cytokine-based treatments. The first real jump in renal cell cancer was the introduction of anti-angiogenic tyrosine kinase inhibitors in the mid-2000s with sunitinib, the OG tyrosine kinase inhibitor for renal cell cancer. But this still did not produce durable overall survivals, with the median overall survival being about two years. The next big leap obviously came with immunotherapy. In 2015, Checkmate 025 introduced immune checkpoint inhibition. And the question that has been bouncing around in the minds of people much smarter than Josh or I has been, what if we take best of both worlds? What if, in the words of Odell Paso, we, why don't we have both? The current question is, can we combine TKIs with immunotherapy? Overall, in the last 30 years, the median overall survival for someone with advanced renal cell cancer has improved from one year to five. Now at ASCO, there were two long-term follow-ups that were presented. Keynote 426, which was a combination of pembrolizumab and excitinib, and the CLEAR study, which was pembrolizumab plus lenvatinib. And incidentally, that combination has just been approved, the first of its kind, in Australia for the treatment of advanced renal cell cancers. But should you do it? That is a question that is still being answered and still being debated over. But I think this summary is a good one. So there is a biological rationale behind the combination. Anti-angiogenic TKIs are thought to modulate the tumour microenvironment and improve T-cell effector function. So therefore, we can expect better, more durable immune responses. In previous presentations, not just of Keynote 426 and Clear, but Checkmate 9ER and all of the other um, TKI combination uh, trials, They've demonstrated high response rates and critically quite fast response rates, particularly compared to um, Checkmate 214, which is the pivotal trial of IPI-NEVO, which is the current standard of care in in low risk and in most intermediate risk advanced RCCs. And the combination was also found to improve progression-free survival. The overall survival of these two studies that was presented at ASCO, without belabouring and getting too much into the numbers, there were both positive trials. However, if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, the benefit does appear to attenuate over time, which means that the the combination may not be as durable as we had hoped. Sunitinib is the metaphorical tortoise racing against the hare. It does catch up given enough time. You compare this to Checkmate 214, where the dividing of the curves is still ongoing. There is still a huge division between ipinevo and sunitinib. So the duration of response for TKI plus IO on average is about two years. And this corresponds to the time of discontinuation of pembrolizumab as well as the lack of a CTLA-4, which some people will say actually improves response. So these studies do not change practice, but they do provide an alternative. It's important to note that there is no benefit of combination in the favourable disease cohort. So the presenter of the discussion actually came up with a paradigm, and I think it's a good one. 
The suggested treatment paradigm in the first line, obviously with the usual caveats of patient discussions and patient preference, is if they have oligometastatic disease, you should consider local therapies. So radiotherapy, surgery, resection, that sort of thing. If there is a sarcomatoid component, there is a burden of evidence that ipinevo tends to do better. However, if you require a rapid response, then the addition of a TKI to immunotherapy is better because you do have that rapid response that can save someone from a visceral crisis. So I guess the question is where to from here as the last point. There is studies coming out, specifically COSMIC 313, which has already been presented, but we're still waiting the final results, about triplet regimens, so doublet immunotherapy with a TKI. We know they are beneficial in the short term with PFS, but there is significant concerns with toxicity. There's also this very interesting idea of an adaptive treatment regimen where you start with a doublet and then you add a third agent if you need. And this is being examined in the pedigree trial, which I'm very much looking forward to. So a very, very good summary of the treatment landscape of metastatic renal cell cancer. So Josh, that is the Cliff Notes summary of genitourinary cancer as described by ASCO. Join us next time where we will be continuing our promenade through the streets of Chicago, virtually of course, and we'll be talking about metastatic breast cancer. We've already talked about the early stuff, but this is, uh, this is going to be some more good stuff from Chicago. We love having you here. We love doing this. Thanks so much for your time. Take care. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.